0: Net Zero Decarbonization LCAs EPDs HPDs Cradle to Cradle Level Living Building Challenge Lead Well Fit Well Paddle Is your head spinning yet? It would be no surprise if it is. Welcome to the IHER Design Podcast, your source for interior design and architecture news, interviews and opinions. I'm your host, Robert Yamanen and you are tuning into the second episode of a three-part series we're in the middle of on sustainable design. And if that list of terms and eco-labels I just rattled off resonated with you, then you're going to want to stick around for the conversation I recently had with a few industry experts about the tools and programs that are on the market for architects and designers to help them reduce their environmental footprints in the battle against climate change. Joining me in this episode are Candon Murphy, Sustainable Building Advisor at Perkins & Will, Stephen South, Design Director at Spectre Group, and Pablo LaRoche, Sustainable Design Lead at Callison RTKL, who all shared some really great insights, tools, and best practices to help demystify the process of designing and specifying projects and products for the new climate reality we're facing, a topic we discussed at length in the first episode in this series. So grab a notepad and get ready to take some notes as these well-versed design professionals share their insights and practical tips for bringing the big sustainability picture into much sharper focus. Let's dive in. Well, hi, Candon, uh, Stephen, Pablo. Welcome to the iHeart Design Podcast. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you.
2: Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank, thank
0: you for inviting us. Absolutely. Well, I'm honored that you're all here to talk about sustainability with us because um, just looking at your titles and the firms that you represent, I feel like I've got some really heavy hitters in the room here, which is awesome. Um, but, but for our listeners that may not be familiar with who you are, uh, and what you do, could each of you go around and just give us the quick elevator pitch on what you do at your respective firms? And, uh, Candon, why don't you go first?
1: Sure. I'm Candon Murphy, and I am a sustainable building advisor with Perkins and Will. Um, I'm out of the Dallas studio, which is our largest studio actually in the firm, but, um, our firm is quite large. We have 20 studios, uh, across the world, and we are multidisciplinary firm um, uh, with many services available.
0: Sure. Great. What about you, Stephen? I'm
3: Stephen South. I'm a design director at Spectre Group I'm based here in New York City, but we also have an office in Miami and um, represent probably more of a smaller practice. But, um, you know, I work with the teams here who meeting specifications on projects that really help to drive the topic that we're talking about today.
0: Great. All right. And last but not least, Pablo, mm. uh, tell us about yourself.
2: Yes, I'm Pablo La Roche, and I lead, uh, Caliston RTKL's sustainability team. Um we are, uh, we're the firm's in-house, uh, consultants. We work with all our offices supporting the design of projects. Really our goal is to work closely with the teams to develop and test ideas together. And because of the testing of these ideas, we have a strong emphasis on building simulation. We strongly believe in, again, generating and creating ideas, but also testing and demonstrating that these ideas actually work.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you all so much for that. And as I mentioned kind of offline before we got started here, um, our first episode in this three-part series on sustainability, we talked about the new climate reality that we all face and some of these big-picture concepts around carbon reduction and net-zero targets. And um, one of the things that struck me about the conversation I had with my previous guests, uh, John's Walker from HLW and Jay Valgora from Studio B Architecture, was how willing they were to share ideas uh, around what their firms were doing to tackle this issue of climate change and carbon reduction in the built environment. Um, Because to me, it seems like in the past, there's been sort of this um, more of a guarded uh, proprietary spirit, if you will, around what firms are doing as a way to kind of get a leg up on the competition. But these two guys, I mean, they literally exchange phone numbers so they can share (laughs) design strategies, you know, around mass timber, for example, um, following the podcast, which I just thought was so refreshing and it's also why I'm really excited to have all of you here today at the table because um, I sense that same sort of spirit of cooperation about coming together to discuss like such an important issue um, that the entire industry you know, faces collectively. And, you know, so to kick off our conversation in that spirit, uh, I was hoping you all could share uh, your thoughts about uh, like how architects and designers can really begin to distill this concept of Combating climate change um from a macro perspective down to a more manageable maybe micro type approach in their work um so in other words, what sort of a mindset or shift in thinking is required uh to bring this daunting challenge down to a more practical level? Pablo, how about we start with you?
2: Sure, I think uh, I'd start to say it is a daunting challenge right it is um uh let's say scary when you think about mm-hmm. all the issues that are involved and The key thing is that there's no one single solution to this climate emergency. However, our work as architects and designers is really well-defined. About maybe 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. And of these, maybe operation of these buildings is about two-thirds of these emissions, and about a third is actually emissions coming from the construction of the building, what we call embodied carbon. So really just understanding that Forty percent of the emissions come from our work is really just uh something that we can do to focus and understand the strategy that we need to implement now the The good news is that imagine if we if all our buildings were carbon neutral if all our buildings were net zero or even better carbon positive or climate positive we'd be cutting our emissions our anthropogenic emissions by forty percent right right up there so we really have to focus on understanding that it's our job as designers and architects, as urban planners, and people that deal with the physical environment to reduce these emissions and focus on maybe operation and embodied, and just sort of understanding that. I think and that's our realm in, in which we work. I think is 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 one step forward. Sure,
0: uh, Kanden, uh did
2: you
1: want yeah. to add to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely chiming in. Um, Thank you, Pablo. It's it's true that understanding the difference between operational and embodied carbon is so important because we, as architects and designers, can have effect really on both, um, working with your consultants and in your specifications uh, themselves. But uh, thinking about like how you can break that out into manageable pieces can be also the biggest challenge. Like, what do you tackle mm-hmm. first? Um, and we really recommend, when you're thinking about embodied carbon, is to think about the six surfaces when you're standing in a room and kind of starting there. If you're working as from the interior side, so you're working on a TI as an interior designer, you know, how can you affect the flooring products and the ceiling products um, and your wall products first, because they do represent the largest area of the space. And if you're coming at it from an architectural perspective, you know, what are your, your big mass items? What um, can you start to reduce the carbon, in your concrete and your steel, are you working on a mass timber building? How can you make sure that your sourcing is correct on there to, you know, cut down any transportation? So thinking from big to small is kind of the best way to start, we would say, um, because then you can start to tackle the, the items that are make, going to make the biggest impacts.
0: Yeah, definitely. Stephen, uh, any thoughts you want to add?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, we also play a big role in working with clients on, Also, starting with them from the beginning of the project, so sometimes it's working with clients to help them locate the best site, and that could be a great opportunity to do an adaptive reuse project where you can help cut down embodied um, CO2 in buildings by reusing an existing building stock Um, so you're not actually adding to the carbon. You're actually using something that's already um, taken place and you know, helping clients see and envision spaces that they really have in, in spaces like that um, or even if you're citing a new building or a new space, you know, how to make those right decisions starting at the upfront, the beginning process, and then carrying that all the way through design, construction, implementation. Um, you know, we've come I think we've come a long way in understanding our how to impact operational impacts of CO two in buildings. But the big challenge is for everyone to get their head around really I think is more around embodied CO two in, in buildings and really how to how we can actually design smarter and better, more innovative, to really have a bigger impact on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my, my next question, uh, Canon, I'll start uh, with you because I know uh, some of your background has been in uh, you know material uh, libraries and and tools and all that uh, that sort of thing. But what are some of the resources and tools that are currently available um, or maybe most helpful to uh, design practitioners to help them um, assess and reduce their carbon footprints of their project uh, their projects?
1: Absolutely. Um, tools. There's so many tools on the market. Um, it can be sometimes hard to filter, especially when you are thinking about sustainability broadly and how do you select um, what is the right place for that? Um, so you kind of have multiple levels of tools. You have tools that you're working with in actually measuring the carbon of your building um, in full building analysis or life cycle analysis. Um, We personally use Tally. We really like Tally. Um, We also use some one-click LCA. Um, These are both great programs. Um, I would say whatever is kind of prevalent in your area might be good because sometimes these tools are kind of based more regionally as far as the information that's available in them. Like our Mm -hmm. European counterparts prefer different things than we prefer here in the U.S., accessible to everyone and highly recommended that is a different kind of tool because you can use it for multiple different things is the ec3 tool and the ec3 is really what is kind of the main hub of embodied carbon information Mm -hmm. um that exists and it was um started uh out of the university of washington it's really the one that's kind of most it's Actually is the one that's most prevalent and has the most information to help you understand it. you can understand that from a full building perspective and also in an individual material perspective um I do want to uh give a side note of anyone that's kind of taking this first step on embodied carbon journey the e c three tool when you first get into it can feel overwhelming. Just give it time, watch some videos it will become second nature. I promise it is has like a bit of a barrier to entry because it's <laughs> a little bit it seems like a lot of information coming at you right at at once, but um, I promise with a little time and, and perseverance you can get through it. And then really ultimately if you're a person that selects materials and you don't have, you know, any control over large amounts of material selections, maybe you are an interior designer and you only have the ability to say like specify a ceiling product, um, your the EPDs, the environmental product declarations are always going to be the baseline right now until we build even more tools. And learning how to read an EPD um, can, again, take a little time, but start to learn how to, to read those and, and pull them and compare like for like products. But um, the thing about EPDs that you should also understand is that there is a little bit of a learning curve there. Make sure you're taking, you know, watching webinars, Googling it and making sure that you're comparing apple to apples um there are databases for EPDs there's many on the market we really like sustainable minds and mindful materials um and then you can also get them directly through manufacturers
0: uh Steve or Pablo you want to add anything to that
3: those are exactly the ones that I was going to talk about as well I mean, <laughs> think are great I mean the nice thing about the ec tree, it's, it's open source so everyone can have access to it um and I think what Canon said you know with this you know this process, if you're just starting to get into it, it does seem overwhelming, but the more you do it, the more you get into it, the more second nature it becomes, and I just think it makes us better designers, um, and using these tools properly and, and getting embedded in it is, I think, a really important part of the design process.
2: Yeah, I would just add that um, we use those tools also. I I think one of the exciting things about the times in which we live is that there's software available to measure different types of impacts, which was not available or easy to use maybe even just 10 years ago. We can measure energy consumption, energy generation, operational carbon, embodied carbon, daylight, air movement. Right now, we're even starting to measure. We're using a a software that's called NVMed to measure the impact of trees and outdoor spaces. So we're doing microclimate design in which we can include Fountains and trees and shade, and see the impact on the outdoor uh, comfort by implementing these strategies. So, it's really about being able to test things, test our ideas. And I think um, uh, it's really important to also have the knowledge. It's not just a tool, right? It's to have the knowledge to solve problems that many times are not well defined. Many times, these are problems that are combinations of problems, and there's no tool by itself that is going to solve the issue, and we have to understand how to approach it in a in a sort of like a different mindset and have some understanding of uh, basic building physics and how things move and uh, to really use these tools carefully. So I, th- I would just add that it's the, also the understanding of how what these tools are doing that is also important, and I think we would all agree on that. It's not just the tool itself.
3: Yeah, right. absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Chiming in on that, like, um, it's it's true we need to think critically about all of these um aspects as we're moving I mean, you know, we're moving into the future, right? These are things that we didn't use to mess, like even ten years ago, even five years ago for some of them, and understanding how to use a combination of things um to create data that is measurable, that we can constantly approve upon, is just kind of our first step in sustainability journeys. We're all learning this right now.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know there's a lot of different tools that you all mentioned, and so um, I will be sure to get some links and put those into the, the show notes so people can go refer to those and link to those. You know, I, I mean, I'm getting the impression too here as I'm listening, you know, that there there is so much information out there, which I think you alluded to, Cannon, uh, that there's all these eco labels, third party certifications out there, and it can cause uh, some confusion, um, for specifiers, you know, as they're trying to compare products, uh, similar, similar products. But can you all sort of maybe help simplify what some of these programs cover and how, um, designers can make sense of them? Steven, would you want to take that one first?
3: Yeah, I'll kind of start with the interesting story. Just this past week, I had an email from a manufacturer that was wanting some new products. And they said that it met over fifty different um sustainability standards, <laughs> standards and um and eco labels I was just like that's a bit insane, like you know that's just <laughs> how do anyone, one you know <laughs> look at that and know that you know it's like you, you solve the problem through quantity how do we know you know the quality and they said it's all science based and you know right um but you know. Based on what we what we do, there are different categories for um, um, eco labels and third party certification. And the importance of that is that you don't want the um, industry itself or the manufacturers themselves sort of checking that information. You want it to be a separate third party to make sure that everything is being treated fairly and it's all um, sort of non biased and you know with that there are a few certifications under how we do building construction how we put the buildings together and that's you know with living building challenge lead well cradle to cradle there's things that deal with just building materials themselves so when you're actually looking at products to specify you're looking at the declare label and bifma and green garden certification In um, there's things just around cleaning chemicals and services mm-hmm. uh, even electronic products so you want to find what's that what product you're looking for and what that actual industry category is. And there's usually, you know, anywhere between a couple to like maybe four or five, um, third party certifications that apply to that product, that material or that construction method that you can then use. And, um, and, you know, that's not, that's not 50 that would be applied to one mm-hmm. product type. <laughs> sure, um, sure. so it's, um, once you have that, then they can help you get the information that you need to help you make informed decisions for what you're recommending to use on projects. Yeah. Because all it is is really just verifying that they're meeting certain, that the information they're providing is accurate and they're meeting certain goals. And that's what you're checking. So it's not to tell you yes or no to use a product, but it's to give you the information that you need to make those decisions mm-hmm. of what you think is best for that project to achieve the goals you're trying to reach.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you're, you're alluding to a question I want to ask about greenwashing in a minute, but, um, I'll give it an opportunity for Cannon and Pablo to just talk about how designers can sort of simplify some of these programs. So, um, Cannon, it looked like that you had a comment there.
1: I absolutely, um, I highly recommend, uh, checking out the common materials framework. Um, so this, the CMS, um, is a newer kind of framework that's just come out, um, in the last six months before, um, and was inspired by the AIA materials pledge and understanding that there are different considerations when we're thinking about sustainability, um, that a client or building or space might prioritize depending on its use or values or, you know, end goals. Um, and the, the CMF has been had input and insight from many, many different firms, consultancies, sustainability specialists kind of around the world. Um, and that's now available through Mindful Materials as kind of a public document, but it will be integrated into other kind of databases and frameworks um, in the future. And it is just a really great place to help kind of demystify some of this, because um, as was just being mentioned, you know, there might be multiple certifications that apply to like a, a similar end result. Um and they have just this really great like one page in their presentation that shows like these four certifications apply to indoor air quality and VOCs and human health. And like that is kind of how you can start to, you know, figure out what is what is applying where. Um the other great thing that the Common Materials Framework does is it it does help people align with the AIA materials pledge, uh those firms that have signed on to that. Um and it will just kind of, uh, help you start to understand where, a mater- where, a uh, certification might not be as reputable because these are all very science based and have been vetted by multiple sources to be, you know, actual third party verified eco labels. And so if you're not seeing your eco label in the framework, that's the time to ask questions. And I'm sure that leads into your next question, Robert.
0: Okay, sure. Well, Pablo, did you want to add anything? Well,
2: yeah, okay. just, um, I, I, I think, uh, all of that is really good. I, I just add maybe that, um, uh, there's, a, and generally, like, two types of certifications for buildings. Some, some that focus on the building performance itself and others on the human sort of aspect of the occupants of the buildings and the wellness of, of these uh, occupants. Like, a couple of years ago, we did a study in which we compared Uh, I think it was like 12 uh, rating systems for a client, and they were interested in seeing which one would be be more appropriate for their facilities, and if they needed to develop one sort of based on these. And we found many uh, interesting things, like for example, um, when we compared the weight and their their points, and these were just for buildings, the largest weight was really uh, energy and carbon, right? It was about 29, 30 percent of the impact of these rating systems was really on, which which really makes sense, right? To it's the climate emergency. And Then there was water, indoor environmental quality, health and well-being, materials and waste. So it's these are all sort of typical things that are considered in these uh, building certification systems. And what I would always look for is also what is the standard behind each of these. For example, we're talking about energy. Are we talking about ASHRAE 90.1? What is the, because all of these rating systems use a standard for different things, and that's really what makes them helpful because they're, uh, ha- making you do a certain level of sustainability by implementing these standards. So it's good to understand that there's like a specific topic that, or different topics that these certification systems cover, mm-hmm. and then that each one of them is supported by a different standard. And that's what makes them powerful also,
0: right, yeah, absolutely, and what would you say would be some of the misconceptions uh that exist in the in the industry right now as far as project and product certifications go uh that we ought to clear up well i about?
2: I think the the one that we would probably all agree on is that everybody will think, oh, it costs more right when we to certify a building or to implement one of these uh programs uh and I would certainly say that. It could be true on a, uh, up to a certain point on um, if we're just looking at first cost. But, uh, codes are becoming more stringent in cities and states. And in many cases, it's just really, uh, simple to do, do a little bit more and focus. For example, in some projects, we're, we're doing, okay, we do like, let's say, a certain level of certification, but then we push carbon and we go for zero carbon. And we are sort of looking at trying to achieve uh, a a good level in everything, but pushing it even more in certain levels. So um, the other part is also it's uh, it's certainly more expensive in in locations without a strong energy or sustainability code, right? Because you have to do more than what is required. But the the good news is that the buildings are going to be more valuable in the long run. There's lots of data. And research, or maybe actually I would—I should say there's not enough data on research. We all know this, but it's not always easy to find the numbers to prove this to our clients, that the buildings are, you know, uh, occupants are going to be more productive, are going to be happier, are going to love their spaces more, are going to interact with them more. And the buildings themselves are going to be more valuable over time because they're, they're probably going to be more resilient. They're going to be more resilient to climate change uh they're gonna be stronger and, and they're just gonna uh maintain their value over time uh a lot better than a building that is not uh designed with sustainability in mind.
1: Just kind of chiming in on that, um we also find a kind of a misconception that there is, you know, one sustainable building certification or even one eco label or transparency document that is like the one to rule them all, if you will. Um and there, there's no definitive, um, you know, absolute, like, this is the one and, and nothing else matters. They're all needed for different reasons and you will start to, you know, find your favorites and talking about building certifications, like, that might be even regional, like what you should be focusing on. Sometimes a living building challenge is a better way to go if you're in a certain part of the country than a lead is or vice versa um and also that a transparency document or an eco label on a material might be the only one needed but in fact there are many that are needed um when working on a building when you need to consider everything about a material or a a building or what have you
3: yeah i wanted to add as to what paula was talking about in terms of cost really in um in some cases there's opportunities to you know depending on your design strategy and how you approach it there are opportunities to help you know maintain cost or or lower cost than what you might normally do and it's about being smarter about how you design especially maybe from an interior design standpoint it's about really how you use materials and how much materials you use um you know we recently completed a project but we left a lot of parts of the existing building exposed, and we didn't add a lot of materials, but it added a lot of texture and interest to the space that the client and their guests really you know, enjoy, but it was taking a very minimal approach to how we used and applied materials, but in a very smart and creative way, and it made a bigger impact, and it kept the cost down to the budget that they needed
0: it to be. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, And so I know we alluded to this earlier uh, as far as greenwashing, but Canada, can can you talk a little bit about that um, in terms of how prevalent is it uh, still in terms of manufacturer uh, claims uh, around products and in maybe some tips on how uh, design professionals can sort of parse through what's fact and fiction?
1: Um, I uh am so grateful that Stephen mentioned his manufacturer that came with uh fifty claims um because <laughs> we still see it all the time. I've recently even seen like a poorly photoshopped like fake eco label on a product. Wow. Um <laughs> it happens here and there. Um so it's it's prevalent and but the th- greenwashing is prevalent throughout our lives, not just in the building industry. I mean, you can see it when you're walking down the grocery store aisle. Um, And my advice is to just ask questions, be wary, um, know where the standard is coming from. You know, Pablo was talking just a moment ago about how all of these things relate to standards. They relate to third-party testing methods. They relate to, to science. And if, you know, you're seeing an eco logo or you're hearing a claim from someone that says, um, you know, we're sustainable. Well, what does that mean? How are you sustainable is the question that you should be asking and um, and, you know, kind of doing your research on the side. Um, and then to add on that to grandiose statements, uh, we find about things like we're, you know, net positive or we're carbon negative um, or we built a carbon negative building. Also, you know, kind of take that with a grain of salt. That's very difficult to do right now. And uh, this is often done through, um, through racks or purchased offsets. So, um, let's, we, we want to figure out how to design to these things and not just throw some money at the problem because we've, you know, recently found out that that is not working.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, I, I, Candid has said it very well. And uh, I just always, I mean, it's prevalent. I've seen it even in EPDs and in which it's hard to find, uh, information that you need to find, you know, when you start suspecting something. Uh, I think she said it very well in the sense that just, uh, try to find, try to make, uh, uh, try to study. And, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's difficult. Like whenever I see a description of a project, it's, it's the balance between how much do you have to say to uh, for an everybody audience and how much are you going to say for the technical person that is going to look at that report or that information about the project so there's always this balance between these two things sometimes it's just that we're not providing enough information but sometimes maybe we're not providing it because we don't want to provide it because it's not uh, it's gonna disclose something that is gonna make the, uh, the, what we're saying is gonna be, uh, understood as not exactly 100% true. So, it's just like everything in life, and as Ken was saying, you know, we walk down, we, everything that we see now is sustainable suddenly, right? And it's like, how do, why is that sustainable? it's like, you know, so, so, like, the, the grocery store, right? Like, sustainable packaging, sustainable this, sustainable that. Now why is what I would, you know, how, how truthful is, uh, you know, co- compostables, uh, uh, utensils, right? The stuff that we use to eat. I mean, it's so all of these things maybe it's, it's compostable after 500 years, but then, um, it, it's, it's the same thing with everything. We just have to, uh, really try to be well informed. And try to be, um, critical in a good way, right? It's not that we're not going to believe everything, anything that we see, but just really try to understand what they're trying to see, what they're trying to do and how they did whatever that is explained as it's being done in a certain way.
0: Sure, sure. Stephen, any, uh, best practices on cutting through some of the greenwashing that's out there? I just think to add to what
3: was already being said, you know, ask lots of questions. This is a, it's a, it's a long journey, it's not a short path, and you know always question everything and the more and the more you question the more information you garner and the more information you build within yourself to make those better decisions and you know the you know to what the public saying there you you do you get things all the time it's the greatest a sustainable product um you know, but how did it achieve that and and a lot of these things that you know they're not silver bullets where it's just coming out and it's a quick fix you know all these things take time to really vet them through and and our understanding of things change over time too because the more information that we get the more we can then make better assessments of how things really affect they really are and so it's really about being diligent and building up that knowledge base and always asking questions and getting to get to the answers you need to help you make the right decisions.
0: yeah you know, in light of that, I know there's um, a lot of firms that have created their own um, applications to sort of help tackle, uh, you know, these, these questions um, about greenwashing and certifications, uh, decarbonization. Uh, Canon uh, Perkins and Will recently launched a new um, application as well. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I'd love to touch on it and I can take no credit. I just happen to have some extremely smart colleagues, um, that have been working on this. So, um, I mentioned Tally, which has been a tool that's been around for a little while now, but, um, some colleagues have banded together to work with Tally for the Tally Climate Action Tool, which is called Tallycat and has a cute little cat logo. Um, but this is a free tool that helps designers to export materials and quantities directly into that EC3 tool, the building transparencies embodied carbon and construction calculator. Um, and this is just really kind of bringing, um, a little more accessibility even still to folks. Um, and it really helps teams and uh, kind of all ranges of experience, uh, help them to select and specify and procure uh, lower carbon products and because we know the, the upfront impacts are huge and anything that you can do to help, you know, even reduce a few items is going to be great, right? So we're really excited about that one. Check it out.
0: Absolutely. Pablo, do you want to add anything to, uh, to that as far as, you know, firm created applications that you've seen? I, I think, uh,
2: you all, know, the first thing is really that, that as designers that we, you know, we do the work, we should, probably have an, an active role in, in software design, teaming up with software developers and academia. So I think these tools that come out are are, are great. We developed uh, one in uh, CRTKL, which is called Climate Scout. It's um, personally, I'm a strong believer in a well-done climate analysis. When we talk about carbon, there's no silver bullet, right? And the first thing is really understanding climate and connecting with climate, implementing passive strategies, really uh, how does the, that building respond to climate? And, and we've developed this. It's, it's a website. It's, it's free and it's uh, been used in, in, practice and teaching. It's, it's really very easy to use. You click on a, on a world map. You select the climate zone and then, uh, you start building your, your section, combining strategies from the 2030 palette from, uh, uh Ed Masria's tool and that are interconnected with the thirty Koppen Geiger climate zones. So we wanna add more information like uh waving of these strategies combining with, with the carbon impact on the utility grids and, and things like that. But I think it's a nice little tool in the sense that it really connects um uh all buildings should not be the same, right? In in all types of climate. They should really mm-hmm. connect with climate and it's, it's a simple way to start uh, testing strategies that are climate appropriate. And again, it's free and, and we've developed it on our own time as a, as a way to, um you know, just help a little bit everybody else.
3: Now I was just going to mention, you know, Tally, you know, the first, um, Tally actually came out of, you know, Karen Timberlake. And it's nice to see that, that, you know, it was handed over to building transparency. Um, it's nice to see that some of these firm apps like that coming out and being more shared across the whole industry to help us all, you know, work towards these goals that we're trying to reach. Um, and I think we're seeing more collaboration amongst people than we have in the past, which I think will help in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that that went to my point of, you know, it, early on in the conversation of just the openness that I'm seeing um, among design firms and design practitioners to just share ideas and, uh, and tackle this, this issue, which is, which is such a big one. So as we wrap up the conversation here, um, the last question I had for you all, uh, really centers around, uh, you know, just an overarching theme or message that you want to leave with our listeners, uh, in terms of combating climate change through the design work that they do every day. So, um, any last thoughts that you want to offer, um, Pablo, why don't we, we start with you? Sure. I, th- I
2: think I'd start with, uh, we can definitely make a difference. And every little bit that we do, whether it's just a little bit or a bigger bit, uh, helps and makes a difference. And we should think about low carbon design as an opportunity to design something that is special and beautiful, not something that is, oh man, boring. I gotta do carbon. I gotta <laughs> think about this technical part. And, and, you know, there's, um, uh, the other day my wife showed me a a, a snippet from a, a series that a swedish uh series that she was watching and it was like this guy was inviting his uh, somebody who wanted him to be his girlfriend to uh, and he said like oh let's go to sustainability presentation this afternoon and the girl says like oh boring you know like <laughs> so it's it's really uh i think uh this is really i always work with our teams and really embrace sustainability as a way uh to make the project more exciting the things that you want to do we can just make them better and more beautiful and perform in in some way right our, uh, sustainability can be beautiful and it should be beautiful and a building that is not sustainable cannot be beautiful ethically it 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 should not even be considered a good building so we really have to understand that sustainability is is about opportunity is about uh making a project better, and that uh anything that we do every little bit really makes a difference, so we should not be discouraged
0: can uh, any parting thoughts
1: uh yeah, great statement Pablo that was fantastic um uh i would my parting thought is really i think words of encouragement to everyone out there listening that is you know, maybe feeling overwhelmed by sustainability or feels like they don't know enough about it. Um This is, you know, uh, it's a marathon. We need to build upon knowledge. So if you're just not even sure where to start, um, start small. I mentioned, you know, earlier in the conversation, like the, you know, four walls, ceiling and floor. Start what you can like look at and touch and and find that thing and like learn a new um You know, a new certification or learn how to read an EPD and then start building upon that knowledge slow and steady. This is not something that you need to tackle all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots of folks that can help you. Like Robert was saying, like this is, I think we're all in this together on knowing that we need to create a better world for, um, future generations. So reach out for help. Um, ask questions. Be okay with not knowing everything and just, you know, do whatever you can and, and build upon that slow and steady.
0: Absolutely. Well, Stephen, we'll, uh, we'll give you the last okay. word here. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been great.
3: Everyone's been talking. But I think i would, just to add to that. Um, yeah, definitely. I think for people, it, it, you shouldn't feel overwhelmed by sustainability. You should definitely feel empowered. Um, and you know, take it piece by piece. And I tell my team members, you know, you should, you should be making lists of questions that you need to ask vendors and manufacturers. About the products that you're specifying and, you know, so that you have a better knowledge and start building the list of questions. So as you do more product research and you're making more product selection, you're creating a great sort of database of questions that, that you've developed that you need to ask to help you get that information that you need. And, um, you know, that's something that you can always build to and change as new things come out and your understanding of things change. You can always update that list. But it's just a good way of having something there that helps guide you through this discovery process and develop your own sort of methodology for how you're going to, to learn and to grow. And it is a, it, it's a huge component of design. It's an important part of design and it's important that it's part of everyone's design process.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, great advice. And um to thank you all again so much for being on the podcast and being willing to share your ideas, your best practices with our listeners. Um, it's really been inspiring, and it's so appreciated. So thank thank you for being here.
2: Thank you thank very you. much for inviting us. Yeah, yes, We're always you. happy to share.
0: Yeah, great. Well, for our listeners out there, if you haven't tuned into part one of this series, I encourage you to go back and revisit that conversation and keep an eye out for the final installment of our three-part series, in which we'll be taking a look at how the higher education market is making commitments to become more sustainable, and the design strategies that are making it happen. Thanks again for tuning in, and as always, be well, everyone.